In early April of this year, go to the next slide, Bud Light announced a new ad campaign. It was a campaign to boost their declining sales among the younger generation, so they created a partnership with TikTok influencer Dylan Mulvaney. It was kind of promotion, sweepstakes, sponsorship, all rolled into one. However, not everyone was happy with the ad campaign because Mulvaney is transgender and dressed up as this character from Breakfast at Tiffany's. And so the result was a boycott on Bud Light. Just a few days ago, next one, Target launched an assortment of LGBTQ-themed apparel, clothing in their stores, an assortment of products aimed to be launched during Pride Month. They called it their Pride Collection. And the result, a boycott announced on Target, which some have speculated has cost up to like $10 billion as stocks have plummeted in recent days. Next one. Former college swimmer Riley Gaines says that she was assaulted at an event where she spoke out about the inclusion of trans women in women's sports. J.K. Rowling, author of Harry Potter, maybe you've read the books, she is under fire for her controversial tweets about the transgender community. And then in May of 2021, Marvel Comics unveiled its first gay Captain America character. Next slide. Just this week, there's a kerfuffle online because of The Chosen, uh, which is an online TV series about the life and ministry of Jesus, beautifully done. And they had a pride flag appear on their set and it was captured in a picture that was posted online, and when asked about it, the show's Twitter account explained that many who work on their program, on their show, on their set, come from various backgrounds, faiths, and traditions, and so it was a production member's flag, and the result that some Christians are calling for a boycott on the chosen, boycotting Jesus. Not to mention that the Olympia School District This last week, Lincoln Elementary School made national news, Fox News, other news outlets covered this for a guest presenter presenting their sex ed curriculum, which included a gender wheel, and among the list of items needed for puberty, razors, deodorant, and puberty blockers. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to break up into small groups of three or five, and everyone will be forced to give their opinion on Bud Light, Target, J.K. Rowling, Captain America, and The Chosen. (laughs) And if we have time, we will then cover the debate on gender dysphoria, transgenderism, changing pronouns, and the legitimacy of gay marriage. All right, I'm joking. Let your heart rate go back down again. Some of you are like, I'm never coming back ever again. These are, I can see it in your faces. These are tender topics with polarized responses. And and the easy thing for me to do is to throw out the hot topics and the headlines because that keeps it out there. 
But these issues are more than just an out there thing, much more closer to home, right? All of my kids at school have friends who are identifying differently, different gender, different pronouns, in some cases, different names. I have family members who are gay. We have people in our church community who struggle with same-sex attraction. Like this is not just about distant issues far out there. There are people in this room significantly impacted by this conversation. Right, this is family. These are friends. These are sons and daughters, neighbors, co-workers, godchildren, nephews, nieces. Maybe you. People to be engaged, not just arguments to be won. But in and all, the question still needs to be asked, how have you come to shape your thoughts about these themes? And why do you respond the way that you do? So we are currently in the second week of a pre-summer series. We've paused our series going through the life of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob from Genesis. We will come back to it later in the summer. But we're doing a six-week series this, this summer. Talking about one of our blind spots in our discipleship to Jesus. And there are many blind spots that we could name and talk about. But this is the one we're going to talk about now. And so before we go further in this series and conversation, I felt compelled to spend some time here. Here's the title for today's sermon. The Thing Beneath the Thing. The Thing Beneath the Thing. So maybe you've noticed, but in our culture, we're not speaking the same language anymore. Our statistics are different. Our words are different, our vocabulary is different, our acronyms become non-starters. But even deeper, I found that we are unable to have a conversation about this because we come from very different places and very different worlds. And so we can spin our wheels talking about arguments and analysis and answers, uh, but one thing I've learned in a few decades of being a pastor, I've learned that there is always the thing beneath the thing. So when I, when I do, well, it's true in my own marriage, but also when I do marriage counseling, there's always the thing that people are arguing about or fighting over, and then there's the thing beneath the thing. And you think you're talking about this when you're actually talking about that. You're talking about the thing beneath the thing. In discipleship, we can talk about sin, uh, as Pastor Tim Keller has taught me through the years. Oftentimes, though, there's the sin beneath the sin. So we can go to the next slide. So we often spend our time talking about arguments, analyzing facts, presenting data, giving answers and opinions. But here's the thing that's underneath the thing. Here's the thing beneath the thing. Our worldview. Our authority. Our assumptions. The things that we assume. The things that, we, that are operating underneath the surface that feed our arguments and our data and our answers that we bring. 
And the same holds true when it comes to gender and sexuality. There are a myriad of answers, arguments, analysis. But the thing underneath the thing, worldview, authority, structures, assumptions. To quote C.S. Lewis, he says, the most dangerous ideas in a society are not the ones being argued, but the ones that are assumed. We bring so many assumptions to the table even around the things that I've already named this morning. So what's the thing beneath the thing? If you look at the polls and the data, people's opinion on gender and sexuality have changed drastically in the last 30 to 40 years. Why is that? One of the most helpful books, you can go to the next slide, that I've read in the last five years. So there's one book here. It's called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It's a really fat 400-page book. And so people begged him, this is really good, but we can't read it and understand it. So can you make a dummy version of it? And so he made a, and so he made a shorter, more uh, accessible version called Strange New World. I'm going to reference the, that book today, and I encourage you, if you have a, like, if you want to do the deep dive, you can get this one. If you want to do the, it's still a, you know, it's not an easy read, but it's easier than, than this one. But I encourage you, if you want to pick that up, it's helpful. But here's, the, here's how he begins his book, and this may put you off, but here's how he begins his book. He says, the origins of this book lie in my curiosity about how and why a particular statement has come to be regarded as coherent and meaningful. And here's the statement. I am a woman trapped in a man's body. He says, my grandfather died in 1994, less than 30 years ago. And yet, had he he ever had that sentence uttered in his presence, I have little doubt that he would have burst out laughing and considered it a piece of incoherent gibberish. And yet today, it is a sentence that many in our society regard as not only meaningful, but also significant, that to deny it or question it in some way is to reveal oneself as stupid, immoral, or subject to another irrational phobia. So he's like, the, the statement, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, 30 years ago, people were like, yeah, you're crazy, dismissive. And yet that's not the case today. And so he's saying, how did that happen? How, how has that happened? What's, what's the thing underneath the thing that has led us there? So open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. This isn't just a lecture, it is a sermon. So you may realize, as we talk about gender, sexuality, and the way of Jesus, there is no Bible verse that captures Jesus having a conversation with a transgendered individual. There's no gay or lesbian parable in the Gospels. There's no text on gender dysphoria or the gender wheel. There's no treatise on gender fluidity in the text. But when you follow Jesus and you read Jesus and you listen to Jesus, you begin to understand, I would argue, more about the thing underneath the thing and the way of Jesus and how he responds. So, Matthew chapter 19. This passage technically is about Jesus answering a question about divorce, which isn't about the topic at hand maybe semi-related, divorce, marriage, and sexuality. But I want to read it because I think it helps point to the thing under the thing. Matthew 19, here's the passage. It says, The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? 
And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So fresh off of his ministry of, of teaching and healing, Jesus finds himself face to face with a Pharisee, a, a Jewish religious ruler. And he asks this question about the lawfulness of divorce. Can a man divorce his wife for any reason, for no reason? And in our culture, divorce is not quite as controversial as it was, maybe even a few decades ago. Definitely not in the same way as it was during this era, because in Jesus' day, in his religious climate, that question was very controversial, very hot-button. Different people had different opinions, different rabbis taught different things, ranging from progressive to conservative. And his, the teaching on divorce had massive social implications. So as we look at this passage, it's not so much the, the, the specific answer Jesus gives, it's not the what of this interaction. I want to look at the how. How does Jesus engage? Jesus is tossed a religious hot potato, a political grenade, with myriads of implications, arguments, and opinions. And how does Jesus answer? He answers with the thing beneath the thing. So verse three, the question is, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And Jesus, his reply is, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Now to be fair, Jesus does answer his question as he goes, but first he starts here. The, the Pharisee is looking for a controversial answer and Jesus reveals his worldview. Jesus grounds his answers, his argumentation, his analysis on something specific. Now, many of you may be familiar with what a worldview is. I've used that word a few times today. Some of you may not be, so let me, let me clarify this. So a worldview is the way you view the world, worldview. It's the lens through which we interpret reality and by which we reason. It's a set of assumptions we hold, sometimes consciously or unconsciously, about what is true. Some have called the worldview the glasses that you wear through which you see the world. So if I hand you a pair of red sunglasses and you put them on, you're like, man, everything looks red. Like, yeah, because you've got red glasses on. It's the lenses through which we see things, understand things, make sense of things. And everyone has one. Another way of defining worldview is a worldview is a collection of attitudes, values, stories, and expectations about the world around us, which inform our every thought and action. So this is not a Christian thing. This is not a religious thing. This is a human being thing. Everyone, whether you know it or not, has a worldview. You have a set of stories, assumptions, understandings, values that help you make sense of life. So a worldview answers many questions, but these in particular. The authority question. 
Who has the right to tell me what to do? The knowledge question. Where do I look to find the answers that I seek? The trustworthiness question. Who or what can ultimately be trusted? And so how you, how you construct your worldview helps you answer these questions. Who has the right to tell you how to live? Who has the right to tell you what to do? Where do I look to find answers? What can ultimately be trusted? So, so back to Matthew 19. Jesus is presented this question. Is it lawful for a person, a man, to divorce his wife for any reason? And we're told in the text, it's a trap. Like they're there to test him. They're there to trap Jesus. Where does Jesus, God in human flesh, where does he turn to find practical answers and help? What does Jesus do? Yeah. He, he gives them an answer and he says, have you not read the way it was in the beginning? And what he does is he does a mashup of Genesis. He quotes Genesis 1.27 and he quotes Genesis 2.24, and he quotes from the Bible. It was interesting to see that the, the living word of God quotes and relies upon the written word of God as though they actually are compatible with one another and in sync. And actually, Jesus, again, who he's talking to, he's talking to a religious leader who knows the scriptures really well. And he says, like, haven't you read? Haven't you read the book? Now again, we could talk about all, like there, all these things could be like squirrel, and we could run off on different directions all sermon long. I'm going to try and keep us down this line here. But when Jesus speaks to the Pharisee, he quotes from this ancient Hebrew text about the creation narrative. And I think it's important about the how, not just the what of what he does here. So in his book, Strange New World, the one that I referenced earlier, Carl Truman reminds us that the Western, and we are Western people here, the Western worldview has changed over time, especially around the question of authority, the question of who has the right to tell me what to do. So we can put this up here. And again, this is broad strokes. I know it's not nuanced at all. You can argue with me afterwards about that. But he would say that on this question of authority, that it's changed back, so BC to the 300s, it was politics that had the authority. So we're talking here about the era of Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, community life was governed by politics. The empire was in charge. We're talking about the Greek empire, the Roman empire, the Greco-Roman empire. And when rulers changed, politics changed, authority changed. Civic life drove the culture and authority. And then around 300s, it changed to religion. And I don't mean that just in terms of like the Bible or God. I mean the official status of religion and the state. And so something happened in the 300s when Constantine has his vision and the shift becomes to the Holy Roman Empire. And now the church has authority. The church tells you what to do, dictating life and belief. Even today, though you could look at the dates differently, some Islamic countries today operate with this authority structure. Religion tells you what to do, or you die. Then a shift happens in the 1400s, known as the Enlightenment, and Enlightenment changes worldview and authority. Now it's just religious leaders now telling you, or the church telling you what to do and believe, but now we have this thing called science. Science wins. 
Who has the authority? Who has knowledge? What is trustworthy? Follow the data. And then there's this recent shift that has happened. Again, the numbers could be iffy on when this happens, but psychology now has authority. And I don't mean like just the formal study of psychology or the study of the inner self, but the psychological self. Robert Bella talks about expressive individualism. I think I have it on the next slide. Oh, that's true, sorry. I'll get to that one. Robert Bella talks about expressive individualism. He says that expressive individualism holds that each person has a unique core of feeling and intuition that should unfold or be expressed if individuality is to be realized. Or Charles, go back to the Charles Taylor quote. He talks about we live in a culture of authenticity where each of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity and that it is important to find and live out one's own as against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed on us from the outside by society or previous generations or religious or political authority. Authenticity is achieved by acting in accordance with one's inward feelings. So in terms of authority and knowledge and trustworthiness, where do I look? We have had this shift recently where we're, now I'm not looking to religion, I'm not looking to politics, I'm not even looking to science, though science still has its day. I'm looking to me. Who determines what I believe? It's, it's the authentic self. It's expressive individualism. The psychological self, psychological convictions become the non-negotiable realities to which all external realities are made to conform. So how did that happen? How does that shift take place? And again, um, you can read his work. It's helpful to have some scholars trace the themes. I'm going to try and give you, man, as fast as I can, in his work, he cites a few influencers, dead thinkers that many of us remember back in school, kind of, that maybe you kind of read, but that they have, their ideas have worked its way into our worldview. Karl Marx. Karl Marx. You ever heard of him before? German philosopher, economist from the early 1800s. Again, this is simplified. This isn't his full economic theory. But he came to write that religion is a human creation with no necessary abiding significance. In his world, religion fills a psychological need, but it gives a false hope of eternal bliss. So in terms of his economic theory, he thinks that religion actually works in the interest of factory bosses and owners, and it keeps the workers right, in the proletariat, bourgeoisie, conflict, it keeps the workers from rising up. So because they have this false hope of a religion that doesn't really exist, it actually keeps the working class from realizing the desperate condition that we're in and actually doing something about it. So they said, Marx's ideas about religion is, is let's, we need to get rid of religion because it hinders us from actually taking care of the situation at hand. This false hope. It's not helpful. It's actually hindering economic progress. Friedrich Nietzsche, another dead thinker. Friedrich Nietzsche, a German philosopher from the mid-1800s. 
His famous writing statement, God is dead. We have killed him, you and I, and he wasn't mourning that fact. But his idea is that if God is dead, then moral standards are pointless because there's no moral stability to the universe. And morality is actually only manipulation. Morality is only being used by those in power to try and get you to do what they want. So, if this is all, if God is dead and moral standards are pointless, then live for today. Seize the day. Live for the present. You should feel no obligation to conform to the standards or criteria of anyone else. Sigmund Freud. Our core identity is sexual. He would write and theorize that sex is foundational to human happiness. And in this pursuit where we value the pursuit of happiness, that the fundamental form of human happiness is the pleasure derived from sex. So that human nature at its deepest level is sexual and human beings are therefore defined in a basic way by their sexual desires. And it's this huge shift that Freud made in linking human identity with sexual desire because it's what produces happiness. It's foundational to human happiness. Foucault would then go on and say that sex is the master key to knowing who we are. Sex is the explanation for everything. Sex is worth dying for. It's more important than our soul. So again, many, many people, you're like, man, this is why I didn't take humanities in high school. This is why I didn't take philosophy in college. It's confusing. Like, I haven't read a bit of Nietzsche or Freud or any of these people. I'm telling you, though, in the last 50 years, this has become a part of the air that we breathe and the water that we swim in. And whether you know it or not, this idea of, of religion as being manipulative actually not helpful to take care of the real-world problems that are around us. The idea of sex as being this ultimate identity thing for humanity and that your, ha- your greatest happiness is tied to sexual pleasure. Charles Taylor explained that we are living under the spell of the imminent frame, a constructed secular world. Pastor David Whiting said, when you don't end up being aware of what's the thing underneath the thing, here's how you end up making your decisions. Based on what is loudest, what is most popular, what is most emotionally compelling, and most convenient. And that's how many people live today. What is loudest, what is most popular, what's most emotionally compelling, what's convenient. Back to Matthew 19. Jesus' question from the Pharisee. If you look at Jesus and the thing underneath the thing, it's interesting to watch how Jesus rolls in questions of authority, in questions of knowledge, in questions of trustworthiness. Jesus says that there is a beginning. He says, have you not read in the beginning? Jesus actually has this worldview that there is actually a creator. Don't you know that in the beginning... They were created. A God who made all things, not randomly, not by chance, but on purpose. And in God's good world, 
The intent has been, according to Jesus, quoting Genesis 1 and 2, that God's good world, the intent has been for two options, male and female, to be equal and complementary in their expression of imaging God and carrying out God's mission in the world. That God has made humanity male and female, and the two shall become one flesh. This is not meant to be repulsive, but beautiful, not repressive, but liberating, not limiting, but freeing. This is where God invites humanity to share authority and his rule over the world and creation as image bearers who are fruitful and multiply sexually out of a one flesh union and then fill the earth with his glory. So there's a lot of assumptions baked into what Jesus is saying about creator, creation, about sex, biological sex, about sex, about marriage, about image bearing. There's a lot baked in. And you may agree or disagree with that, but I'm just saying there's a thing beneath the thing. A few other observations about Jesus. Jesus firmly, clearly, and unequivocally upholds the authority of God through the scriptures to speak into the problems, challenges, and debates of the age. Jesus wasn't afraid to lean upon the authority of God in scripture to somehow wrestle through how do I make sense of my life? Authority, knowledge, trustworthiness. I want to be like Jesus. Some of us are afraid to be like Jesus. Also, another observation is there seems to be something going on here in Genesis, a creation order, a creation organization that for Jesus stands as valid thousands of years after the fact. So that when Jesus in the first century looks to make sense of his day and age, he points back to Genesis, which was written a long time before he lived and says there's something happening in creation with the creator in some sort of organization and order that is happening here that is still valid for them and I would argue then is still valid for us too. But if our core identity is sexual, if sex is foundational to human happiness, if God is dead, if morality is pointless and manipulative and is actually a harmful false hope that keeps us from actually dealing with the problems of the world, then yeah, let's get rid of that. But there's a whole lot of assumptions that's baked into that. Who can tell you what to do? Who has the authority to call you in how you live? Where do you look for answers? Who is trustworthy in your life? But if there is a God and he isn't dead, actually he was dead and he came back to life again through resurrection, If there is a creator God, a God who has actually spoken in the scriptures, taken on human flesh to teach us, to love us, and to redeem a broken humanity who has been in rebellion to his good rule, if there is authority and assumption, someone who is perfect in love, who knows you best because he made you by the very word of his power, then he actually has the authority to tell you that you're wrong. And he gets to draw the lines of what is good and right, good and wrong, sin and evil. He declares what is broken. But he does so so he can show us a new way forward in redemption. And I know it gets way more complex than that. How you read your Bible, the Bible has been abused, manipulated, I know. 
But we have to name the thing beneath the thing. Now this is probably where for the sake of time I should end my sermon, but I'm not going to. Don't worry, I'm almost done. But I'll be candid that those who hold the historic Christian sexual ethic, those who point to Genesis 1 and 2, those who point to Matthew 19.4 and quote Jesus quoting Genesis, are often the most cruel, heartless, ruthless people toward the LGBTQ community. And that's not fair to the way of Jesus. Especially not fair to them. Because if you want to hold up what Jesus honors in Matthew 19, early verses, Genesis 1 and 2, then you also need to hold what he follows later in verses 11 and 12. See, as you read this, in Matthew 19, Jesus affirms a binary male-female biology is fundamental to the good creation of God. And... He also acknowledges and addresses that there are exceptions, variations that exist in a fallen and broken world worthy of love and conversation. Here's where he does that. Look at this verse, verse 11. So this whole divorce question, remarriage question, uh, it gets his disciples to be like, whoa, what, what are you doing? What are you saying? And he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. Verse 12, for there are eunuchs who have been so from birth... So there are eunuchs from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have been, excuse me, who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. You're like, I'm sure hoping we're going to talk about eunuchs at church today. <laughs> so if you don't know, technically speaking, a eunuch is someone who is lacking testicles or external genitals. Pardon my frankness, but we need to be clear on what we're talking about. Jesus, in completing his marriage discourse, mentions that there are different ways people experience the eunuch life. So Jesus, having just affirmed Genesis 1 and 2, Matthew 19 earlier, he then goes on to say that there are three ways, maybe there are more, but he he summarizes three ways that different people experience that. He says some of them are born that way. He says that some people are born where a genetic, biological issue causes them to be without genitals from birth. Some are born that way. He says also some were made that way, so it wasn't uncommon in ancient biblical days for those who were in the king's court to undergo some sort of castration which would result in a major physical and hormonal change. You tracking? Some are born that way in the eunuch life. Some are made that way by men. And others, he says, choose to live that way, choosing singleness, choosing abstinence, choosing a life of celibacy for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. It's done by choice. Again, we could go off on this whole conversation around marriage and singleness and celibacy, but I find it fascinating that Jesus includes all three of those options because in this kind of casual side conversation, aside from talking about divorce, he clearly affirms that there is more in the conversation than merely design and creational intent. So he does say, yes, don't you know from the beginning, made male, female, the two should become one flesh. God creates these biological differences, male and female. It is good. It is part of his creation pattern. And yet in verses 12 and following, he also is clear that we live in a world, I'll call it East of Eden, that we live in a world of sin, 
and we live in a world of brokenness, and we live in a world where there are some variations and exceptions and deviations, Jesus seems to understand the fallout of sin. And we don't live in a world that is perfect. So he does this, I think, beautiful thing where he affirms God's good creation order. And he acknowledges that there's deviation and brokenness among us. And he holds those tensions. Many who often insist on God's good creation order, male, female, are like, see? Genesis 1 and 2. And then they usually throw out some unhelpful, pithy statement about God making Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, and laugh and joke. Others, emphasizing variations, situations, asking questions, say, well, there must not be any norm. I just can figure out what I feel like and think like, and therefore I'll conform my external world to my internal world. And Jesus does this beautiful thing where he upholds this order and he says, and yet we also live in a world where there are other things happening too. How do we respond to people who are gay? How do we respond to the transgender community? How do we respond to someone who's intersex? I heard this from a pastor in England named Andrew Wilson. I'll just deal with his his line, he says, what does love look like to the intersex, to the trans person, to really anyone who is struggling, wrestling through, challenged with something outside of God's created design? Here are the questions. Here's the statements. God loves you. I love you. What's it like to be you? God loves you, I love you, tell me what it's like to be used. Because so many times in our attempt to be right, in our attempt to win the argument, in our attempt to be theologically sound, in our attempt to go back to Genesis 127 or 224, male, female, two shall become one flesh, we miss some of the basics. It doesn't delete those, that we miss the idea that God loves you. I love you. And if you can't say that, Maybe we start there. And then some curiosity. Tell me what it's like to be you. People who need to know that you're a human being made in the image and likeness of God. People who need to know you have intrinsic value and worth. You have actually matchless worth because you were made by God. People who need more than a lecture. People who need to be listened to. We need to have the maturity and the courage and the curiosity to ask those questions. And maybe to say, I don't understand. People who are experiencing gender dysphoria, which is a broad category, who are experiencing confusion, questions, need patient hospitality, not alienation. If you're confused, I'm not gonna yell at you. Like, does that ever help if you're confused? No. Okay. It doesn't mean that we discard worldview, authority, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and other passages that I would point to from the scripture. 
But I would say that those who are experiencing questions and confusions will be best served by listening love. Next slide. As of April 2023, so like a month ago, month and a half ago, 25.8% of Gen Z identifies as gay, bisexual, or currently questioning their sexuality. And again, I'm not advocating for, again, I'm not advocating for a change of theology. I'm going to continue to teach and preach and disciple from the historic Christian sexual ethic. But there are a lot of people asking questions who are probably more than they realize influenced by Marx and Freud and Nietzsche and Foucault than Scripture. Drawing conclusions based on what they feel. So God made us male and female, biological sex, and we've attached a lot of gender stereotypes on top of it. We'll talk more about that to come. Biological bodies. But also we live in a world with lots of variations. Some because of how we're born, some because of what others have done to us, others because of choice. But I still believe firmly and truly that the only hope for every human being on planet Earth is the final rescue of humanity that happens at the end of the age, at the return of Jesus when our bodies will receive their full and complete liberation. Through his sacrifice, we receive a new identity, a new identity, not bound and defined by our thoughts, feelings, urges, attractions, or dysphoria, but an identity that is rooted and grounded in the God who has made us and remade us to be in Jesus. And through his life, death, and resurrection, our hope our full hope is not merely for society to change all the laws. Our hope is not for a surgery to align our bodies with our feelings. Our full and final hope for all confusion, confusion disjointedness, all of our losses and wounds and questions is the return of Jesus who promises to make all things new. And so we look to his coming mindful of the kingdom of God. There is a day on the far side of pain and suffering that Jesus says he will come back for us. And at the end of the day, that is the thing underneath the thing that we hold to. He is the one with authority and knowledge and trustworthiness. He has come to give us life. He has defeated all of humans' enemies and he is coming again to put the world to right. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we live in complex times. And we again affirm, Jesus, we want to follow you. And we have been influenced by lots of voices, lots of opinions, lots of theories, lots of ideas. Lord, help us to know and follow you. God, I pray for not just uh, this at a theoretical level today. God, I pray for how this hits the ground in human lives in this room.
people who are hearing these words and they themselves are experiencing questions around their sexual identity, around their gender. For those who have dear friends, kids, loved ones, family members, co-workers. Lord Jesus, give us your grace. Give us your wisdom. Lord, help us be a people of love and truth as though they can actually go together and keep us from trying to just win an argument or a culture war at the expense of the people that you love. So Lord, as we keep walking through these things, help us. Lord, we pray that you would be the authoritative one, that you would be the one that we turn to, that you would be the one that we trust. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.